0: Our business is built on a few things. We feel we were doing the right thing when we looked at consent and, and then moving to totally idealist and cookie-less. The data probably at the time, probably suggesting it wasn't the right thing if we just used data to look at it. Looking back in hindsight, we can see that it was the right thing to do. Yes, we went early, but it transpires it was the right thing to do, but we didn't use data for that.
1: Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Today on the show, we caught up with Ozzy Bayram from Ogury, a personified advertising engine. We talk about what personified advertisement is, the trials and tribulations of online advertisement brought about by GDPR, and how Ogury's early belief in personified advertisement works with GDPR and leaves others in the dust as the most effective form of user profile generation. Ozzy also shares his colourful and varied path to becoming the managing director of Oguri, in particular, how his semi-professional football career allows him to drive team spirit and performance into his current role. Before we get into it, depending on where you're watching or listening, give us a follow or subscribe. We're aiming for 1,000 followers over on YouTube. And why not leave us a review? It really goes a long way. Finally, if you can support us with a one-off coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash that tech show, that would be... And with that, here is Ozzy Bayram.
0: My name's Ozzy Bayram. I'm the UK Managing Director at Ogory, the personified advertising company. The
2: personified advertising company? I think we're going to have to unpick that before we go anywhere.
0: Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. So personified advertising is is the way that we, we target audiences or create personas to target audiences to deliver effective campaigns in digital media. And it, it is very different than the traditional way of doing it. Um, so yes, we get that question a lot around what is personified advertising, which is obviously good because it's thought provoking and it, it starts debate and conversation. But it is a relatively new term, hence the reason why not many people know it, um, as opposed to being a retargeting company or a company that uses cookies and IDs to target users, et cetera.
2: So I think uh, we might have to clear a few things up then for but for me and for the listeners in terms of, I mean, my understanding is that, you know, Google already provides some level of personalization around its
0: advertising,
2: but, um, you know, maybe you can explain how this is different.
0: Yeah. So essentially it's, it's targeting personas instead of uh, an individual user's identity. So generally, advertising today will be based on your individual identity, whether that's based on a unique identifier like your your user ID or from your, your cookie trowel that you've left across the internet. Um, so it's almost hyper-personalized to you as an individual, whereas personified advertising is focusing on targeting the impression based on us creating personas of where we believe that that user with these certain interests are likely to be. So what environments are they going to be? What interests are they going to have? And we target the asset or the impression that the user should come across as opposed to individually targeting the user. So it seems like it is, it is quite a big difference in how we do it. I um, mean, it's massively important because one of the big challenges is, you know, that the pool of accessible IDs and cookies is becoming smaller and smaller as, you know, regulation and, and legislation around that, comes you know becomes the titan and titan and titan particularly in the eu but globally as well um as well as consumers pushing back on actually i don't want to be you know that intrusive targeting when you know i've been on a website and then i'm getting spammed by that website across other websites and the internet etc and on other devices they feel that's really intrusive so i guess it's a two-pronged attack from 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 governments as well as from and from users saying actually we don't want this and that's why we we made the decision because we we've foresaw this coming to totally remove those individual intrusive identifiers and basically lead the way in a personified advertising.
1: How then can you confirm that that individual fits within that persona then, if you're not collecting individual's data?
0: Yeah. so So what we've done, so the business was founded seven, eight years ago, 2014, here in the UK, in London, and it started to ask for consent across circa two billion devices okay this was before gdpr before consent was even in place and actually the the industry thought we were crazy to be asking for consent why are you going to ask for consent when you can just harvest this data and it was the time when big data was all the rage and that's all people wanted to talk about and the more data you had the better regardless of how valuable that was or actionable it was but we thought it was right that we asked for consent to to track the user journey the mobile user journey the uses of apps and websites um, and we did that for seven years and we collected that base data. And then we decided to turn that off once we had worked out those behaviors and, and then interests across device, across platform, across apps, et cetera, et cetera. And then from that point, we now enrich and validate that data and refresh it by running millions of audience surveys across multiple devices every single month to validate You know, if we know an audience is interested in, in health and fitness You know, we target audiences and we say, do you run three days a week or do you like to work out? Yes or no. Very specific questions that then validate that that audience is still interested in those personas. They still have those traits. Um, And then we also then kind of enhance that further by analysing millions and millions every single day of actual ad interactions with that audience. So when we set up a campaign, we look at the performance of it. And we know that, you know, say the Daily Mail website should deliver three times the performance on a fitness video creative than other sites. If that drops off, then we know that the persona isn't as, um, as robust as we thought it was. So then we'll try and revalidate that and re-identify what that persona is. But we know audience behaviors and habits don't change that much. Sometimes the platforms they use will. With You know, 10 years ago, no one was using, um, using TikTok, for example, because it didn't exist. But the underlying behaviours that audiences have tend to be pretty consistent. You know, if you're interested in football, you're probably still going to be interested in football in 10 years time. Right. And you're not going to change the team. And similarly, if you're interested in health and fitness or recipes and cooking, you're generally going to have those interests for a longer term. So um, that base data is very valid. But in the future, we understand as we move away from that base data, it's going to lose its validity um, and some of its robustness. So the future is that we then start ingesting in real time those kind of interactions and uh, campaign performance back into our intelligence engine, which will then constantly refresh the data alongside the audience surveys that we're running. And we will no longer have to use that foundation data that we collected, you know, pre-GDPR times.
1: Is this an either or approach to digital marketing? Like, are there certain scenarios where this would work really well for this type of campaign? And whereas targeted marketing would be, you know, you would shy away from certain campaigns because target marketing would work better.
0: Uh, no, in fact, it's more robust than targeting, targeted marketing because it pulls in multiple data points and touch points uh, from that foundation data. And then what, not the term that we like to use, but ultimately zero party data where where the user is actually giving us that, yes, I am interested in these these subjects or these I have these interests with the audience surveys. So it's better and more robust than than cookie data or ID data, we know we have. You know, you have a thirty-day cookie period, but we also know that many more browsers, whether that's uh, iOS or, or Chrome, etc., with Google and, and Apple, uh, are very much tightening their grip around cookies. We know cookies are the deprecation of cookie is coming. We also know that IDs are next on the list. So um, I don't think there's there's it's a either or. This is the longer term future ultimately and this is the way the whole market's going to have to go unless we you know we continue to sleepwalk into into a future where it doesn't exist and then we kind of hash out a a solution last minute when when either it's legislation or it's one of the the bigger players in in apple or google just turn you know switch the the cookie button off
2: it's, it sounds to me like it's more like segmentation then so it's kind of you're breaking people into well as you say breaking people into personas You know, I've done that sort of stuff before around recommendations engines, which work in a sort of, we we have a couple of different personas, but we would have called them segments, I guess, back in the day. You know, how you would find stuff, say, on Amazon of people like this, also like this, you know, that sort of grouping people into here are the people who like action movies or here are the people who like um the Gilmore Girls. I don't know why that one came to mind. They, you know? <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I guess um, on a higher level, yes, there is similarities to it, but it goes broader and, and more granular at the same time. Because when we look at our, our personas, it picks up interests or people that brands uh, and agencies wouldn't necessarily feel would be in their core target audience because they're not leaving those unique identifiers behind that, that the agencies and brands are using at the moment. And particularly when they're moving from a cookie environment like mobile web or desktop to a, a cookieless environment like in app, and how do you how do you pick up their app usage versus their mobile web usage and combine those two data sets together to give you a broad view so yes they may know that they like action movies and certain programs on tv and they like to run but they also know that they're a car enthusiast and in this particular brand of car and they have the my porsche app uh, that they really use every week etc 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 they wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily know that it is segmentation is a thing but you know segmentation was always generally down to certain category level or vertical level in terms of this segment is a car enthusiast okay but can you tell me more about that audience what else what other persona traits do they have
2: so you're suggesting it's more of a three-dimensional
0: sort of view yeah exactly that exactly that
1: that's really interesting because like the way i feel let's call it traditional digital marketing and actually it's similar to a conversation or a question i asked with um Vera on the Sales Beat episode is that a lot of assumptions are being made on the data that's being collected, right? This type of person will do this and they'll go here and whatever. What I'm hearing is actually you run, I mean, you're not making any assumptions on what people like and dislike. You're then confirming that through actual
0: user testing. Is that right? Uh, yes, we're confirming and validating that, that assumption. It is, you know, you could say it's an assumption um, until you validate it. And we make sure that we validate that continually. And then not only just from the survey, but then from the performance of campaigns. And and we see that it is extremely effective because we deliver on pretty much every metric a higher performance than than the industry standards. um is quite a significant amount. So we wouldn't be able to deliver that if we weren't getting you know, that persona correct if we weren't, you know, making that assumption, validating that presumption, revalidating it and enriching it with these surveys and, uh, and ensuring that we're getting to the core of the audience. And as I mentioned, what we're allowing brands to do is find users they didn't think existed. You know, you go to a, a publisher, a standard publisher, and they say, well, actually, we've got one million unique users that are car enthusiasts because they look at this content and we pick up their cookies. We're actually saying that 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 publisher may have two two million of those. They just don't consume car enthusiast contact on your particular platform. They're getting that fix elsewhere. Um, So, you know, we can build up a much more comprehensive user and identify audiences that, as I mentioned, brands and agencies didn't know that existed for that particular client and that particular campaign.
1: I'm interested to know how this, how this came about. Are other companies doing it? Is it, was it kind of a new thing? And, and well, yeah, I mean, let's go back. Let's, let's
0: time travel, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So essentially it was the, the whole principle of the business when it was founded was to create high performing on mobile devices, um, advertising campaigns, but all wrapped up in uh, consumer privacy and consent, as I mentioned before, consent was a thing. So we built a consent management platform or a CMP to enable users to accept or reject sharing that data. And you know, everyone did think we were we were lunatics, right, for, for doing so because you didn't need to do it at the time. And but then you know, when GDPR came in, it kind of validated that that vision and strategy of the business, um, and, and we scaled massively because of that because. We were, we were taking this out to market and, you know, again, we kind of slept walked into GDPR um, as an industry. And then it was a mad, you know, tsunami of who could, who's already set up to deliver at scale our campaigns in a world where GDPR exists. And we were that guy in market doing that. Um, so we managed to scale quickly because of that. So that massively paid off. Um, and then obviously the industry evolved. Everyone was implementing CMPs and, and moved with the times. Now, we've now identified that trend moving forward again. And that's why, you know, 18 months ago, we went fully id as well. We were always cookie we went full id as well and moved into personalized advertising because we can see that in the future, the solution at the moment that's being rolled out by the industry is another identifier, almost mm-hmm. like an ID or a cookie light. And that's not going to be the solution either because it's exactly the same thing in, in all but name. So, We've made this play, again, to go fully cookie and fully idealist and take that to market and and really create personified advertising as a a category or as a thing. Um, And the ambition is that we own that moving forward. We're a global independent ad tech company, but the vision is to become the world's leading digital advertising company that respects user privacy. Now, what that looks like in 10 years' time, we we don't know, right? But uh, we're always looking to evolve and always looking to... To go early, move first, learn fast, adapt, and, and kind of try to define that curve instead of what the industry has done is say, well, we can still use cookies, so let's, let's use them or let's rinse them for as long as we can until we're told we can't. But then what, what next? What, what solution, long-term solution has been put in place? And I think we're in a good position as a business that we are fully sustainable and future-proof from that respect. How did you get roped into all this? What, what's your background like? <laughs> so my background, circa fourteen years in the industry, um, and I know you're going to say you don't look it, but um, I definitely do. Um, it's, I've got you took the words right out of my <laughs> mouth. <laughs> I've got a few filters on. Don't worry. Um, but no, so uh, heavy, heavy publisher background. Um, you know, um, I've, I've only ever known challenges in the industry. I started in the magazine industry not long after the 2007, 2008 around the. Uh, The crash, the financial crash, in magazines, which were always hit first. I started at Time Inc., as it was known, IPC Media then, and then moved into moved to Hearst to work on high end female fashion, and then I moved into newspapers. Coincidentally, News UK. I think six months after the news of the world was shut down. So um, you could say I like a challenge of joining a business in a huge amount of change. Timing is very interesting. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) a huge amount of change and a huge amount of transition um, and and, and digital transformation. Um, And then after that, after kind of seven years in a a kind of big legacy publishers in in massive glass towers in central central London, moved into what I would say, not startups, I would say slightly larger than that, real scale-ups. Um, and ad tech uh, for the last six years now, the past four or five months at Ogri. And actually, it's given me a very rounded view of the market. It's allowed me across multiple multiple disciplines, verticals, platforms to to really understand the whole kind of media ecosystem and landscape, which is, is really beneficial when you're an ad tech business to understand how the bigger guys operate, what challenges they have, what they're good at, what they're not good at, um, being agile, being able to move quickly and change and pivot, they're not so good, as we know. Um, and that's what is important. That we are as a smaller business, and when I say small, ogre is truly global. We're in eighteen markets, and we have you know over four hundred and fifty. Employees and, and and growing at a pace, so I wouldn't say we're we're small in that respect. But uh, but compared to these big giants, we are. So we need to use that nimbleness to make sure that we stay ahead of the curve. Um, but but we shouldn't we shouldn't be frightened of that that kind of perception that we're small and feel like we have some insecurities around being able to define what the future looks like. So we've been quite uh, confident and aggressive in doing that and saying, well, actually, yes, we may be smaller than you, but we are. We're we're not saying we're smarter, but we're saying what we're going to do is we're going to tell you, we're going to try and inform you of what it could look like moving forward. And we can do that based on actual live data and performance, not just from, you know, you know, finger in the air having a guess. So it's not
2: a particularly technical background then that you've come from to find yourself in ad tech. I mean, did you study publishing?
0: No, I didn't. I didn't actually go to uni, so um, I, I kind of fell into the industry. I, I used to play play sport at a pretty high level. I used to play football abroad. Oh, did you? Yes, and then um, like many people uh, in the industry and in media, you know, they they kind of fell into it for whatever reason because it seemed like a cool interest, industry. It's vibrant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mine was simply because my wife recommended recommended it while she was doing a part time role while she was at uni um, at a media business. Were
2: you actually, so we have, to, we have to go back a little bit here. So you, were you actually a professional, professional footballer then?
0: I was, but um, but yeah, obviously I wasn't very good, hence why I'm on this call. <laughs> so
1: uh, <laughs> I take offence to that.
0: <laughs> well, uh, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd want a professional footballer talking about ad tech on, on on the call. So um, and so, yeah, I was shuffled out of the sport, of the football industry, at a relatively young age. So uh, I did all right until I was 21.
2: Well, I, I have I have a similar background about being a racing driver. So you know, that and here we are, both on a call together. So uh...
0: <laughs> what could have been? eh? What could have been?
2: <laughs> that, that must be quite. That must have been quite a. Ast- a change though from going from being you know a footballer into doing media I mean like what when when you say doing media like what was that sort of first job doing I mean what was and also what was giving you the dopamine on a daily basis because obviously it's a very different source of dopamine I guess working in an office than uh, than kicking a ball around a pitch
0: yeah so I started on the very glamorous title of horse and hound magazine
2: it's a natural leap I guess yeah yeah exactly. <laughs> oh, <yep.
0: laughs> I guess it was The fast pace of it, it was, uh, you know, high transactional business. So doing deals on a regular basis, giving that fix, you know, I wouldn't say it replicates, you know, winning an individual battle or a tackle or scoring a goal. But uh, I guess on a smaller scale, it definitely did give me some of that genuine rush.
2: So but it's, it's deals then you're talking about what sort of what's a deal in this scenario?
0: No, a deal for Horse and Hound magazine was getting someone to list their horse for sale in the back of a magazine. Oh,
2: really? All uh-huh. oh, right. So it's properly like um, the actual, actually selling the advertising, I guess. Yeah,
0: actually selling the advertising. But I, I quickly realized, you know, that that wasn't necessarily a longer term play for me. So I moved into management pretty quickly after about 18 months. So a very successful time there and then moved into management, which was more of my, again, you know, led back to a lot of my sports background in terms of, you know, leadership, you know, motivating people. Um, I was always, you know, a captain of, of the sports teams I played for and saw myself as a leader. So I you know, I thought, yeah, that's great doing the transactional the trading or the the, the sales element, but definitely it was more about the strategic leadership areas that that then appealed to me and moved, and that's where I moved into. Uh, and, and now my role as, a, as the MD for the UK at Ogrey is is extremely diverse, from you know working on company culture, cross-functional collaboration, but then the longer-term vision and strategy for the UK, plus product roadmap, plus actually day-to-day with the team, to then being out with clients and entertaining. So it's a very diverse role. Which um, always keeps you, you know, every day's different, and uh, always keeps you interested and slightly, slightly grey around the whiskers. I guess.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Was that um, that sort of sports? I suppose team leadership, coaching element. There's plenty of people out there that um, talk about like you know, the the value of, of learning all of these traits in sports and bringing them into the business world. There's plenty of public speakers out there that are are doing these sort of things. Was that something that you'd made an immediate connection with that you were leaning on your skills that you developed as a captain or, you know, even, even coaching, training, those sort of things. Or was that something that you learned over time that actually, although I've taken on this role because it, feels natural to me i am actually leaning on skills that i developed i suppose as a teenager
0: yeah definitely 100 percent um and uh you know some of them are quite challenging but uh very relevant in terms of you know going to a new team for example and then being made captain of that team and and maybe putting a few people's noses at a joint that maybe they're not captain anymore or you've taken their place in the team um and i i face similar fit similar stuff you know within six months of being at, at um timing on horse and how magazine i moved to a new team um, and pretty quickly i was made the team lead with people that had been there for five years and it's a very similar challenge of managing people with more experience than you managing people that uh, or leading people that uh, had the perception that they were going to get that job or be in that position um, so it's definitely a uh, you know could replicate or leverage that that knowledge um and experience from sport into into the industry that I, I moved into, into roles. And I'm still leaning on that now, right? Is because every every day is a different challenge. And it's how do you manage that?
1: Coming into digital from a very physical, you know, playing football, going and selling adverts, I, I I presume that's a a non-digital kind of world. Was there any um hiccups or or challenges that you faced moving your whole perception on advertisement and marketing
0: to a digital realm yeah i think when we talk about um you know the physical stuff you know we look at print etc it's a tangible medium right so uh clients and and can see the the direct impact of that spend um you can pick up the product that you've just sold uh, into and you can you can flick through and go look i i created that i sold that and that's a little bit more difficult on on digital and Actually, there's more interesting stuff in the back end. Yes, you don't have that tangible product because you very rarely are going to see your campaign online um, because of the, the kind of scale of online, right? The number of impressions, the number of p- eyeballs that are in the digital environment, you're very rarely going to see that. Instead of being a very kind of linear platform, i.e. print is, we print newspapers, you you, you sell this, they give you a piece of creative and you just put you, do, you just print it at the printer's. In a digital world, there's so many more mechanics going on. There's constant optimization of that campaign throughout, learning as you go, tweaking the personas, tweaking the formats that we're, we're targeting, or tweaking, tweaking the environments to ensure that we're getting the performance. So it's more of a, yes, you don't see it, but you're living and breathing it on the back end to make sure that it delivers. Um, so you can almost have more influence on it. Because once you print a paper, you send it out to the news agents, it's kind of, it's gone, right? And it's what what will be, will be. And that's not the case with digital because we can always have an effect during the campaign to make sure we can deliver that
1: when I was first getting into coding and digital and blah, 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 all that kind of stuff, I just couldn't get my head around how some things just like worked. You know, I I make websites, long story short, if I import a file, if I import a style file into that website, I'm like, how does it import it? And then I had to kind of just get over this idea that don't worry about it. Just It's like trying to understand how a printing machine works. You can see the output, but, you know, you don't need to understand all the cogs that move around and things like that. Okay, and I was fairly digital. I was fairly tech savvy at that point, anyway. Starting to learn how to build websites and stuff like that. I just couldn't. I just couldn't imagine most of your world being quite a physical. Like I say, playing football and and selling adverts and moving your whole perception into a more digital environment. I'm just interested to know about those challenges that you might have might have felt moving into a very intangible world, basically.
0: Yeah, it's it, yeah, it has become a challenge because. You think, you know, am I having an impact? What does that impact look like if you can't, if you can't see it? But um, in my current role now, you know, I look at the, the impact. I, you know, I, I'm not a seller, but uh, I can see that impact may not be as tangible as you feel, but then you can see it on a spreadsheet in terms of you see in people's performance improve, you see in the engagement or the culture of the business change. So um, I guess it's about trying to find what good looks like for you. When you move environments or roles, you know, I think, you know, we, we is it the big bad world of digital advertising as it's perceived, I guess, um, with what's going on in the market in terms of the intrusiveness and stuff. I think we just need to look at what impact are we having. Are we trying to do good? Um, are we trying to move the needle in a certain way? And and, and what does that mean to you? And, and how do you bake success into your day? Um, and success could be, you know, the team the team here engaging and turning up for an internal event uh, around a particular subject. Or it could be us doing a great piece of work with a particular client or releasing a news piece of tech that is really cool and no one's done before. So um, I think we I just break it down and compartmentalize it into... What does good look like for this particular work stream or project or or, or period of time? Um, and that could be a physical thing or it could be an intangible thing that that you, that you can't really measure.
2: When you moved across to working with more tech teams, though, did you find that there was, uh, you know, were, were there any sort of barriers that you had to overcome? Did you find that it was, you know, people using different words or were the teams behaving differently? You know, there's, there's always a lot of stuff that you hear around like, especially digital transformation buzzwords like agile i guess or those sort of things were some of those things hard
0: to overcome uh yeah definitely and obviously you know the way different characters and personalities you know certain industries or or teams within within our industry will have very different behaviors you know the sales teams always the you know the loud loud team the outgoing team the extroverted team versus the the pod or the product team that are a bit more uh, they may not call themselves introverted, but they're definitely not as loud and they like a quieter environment, different working behaviors and habits of when they like to work or don't like to work in terms of hours of the day, etc. So, yeah, that that's a challenge. And how do we bring those teams together um, and then people together? And how do you adapt to, to be able to understand and relate to those? And that's, I guess, the role when you're in a leadership role is how can you sympathize or empathize with each individual team? Within, within your uh, kind of responsibilities, um, some is, you know, very much about motivating and g up versus an arm around the shoulder versus actually it's more a detail and a- analytical focus that we're going to, is going to engage a, a particular user from a particular team. So I guess it's just adaptability is what I would say. Um, and again, you know, to relate it back to the business, it's about, being a, it's about adapting as well, right? So when I was at News UK, it was adapting to a, a, an industry that, that was changing from you know mass circulations on on newspapers to be a more digital focused and 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 at Ogre it's the same right it's about how do we adapt to the ever changing and evolving digital environment whether that's from just a a product perspective and tech perspective and, you know, what devices people are using now, how are they consuming media, where are the eyeballs on attention and attention's massively important versus what back end tech are we evolving to to engage in, and drive attention in those environments. Where do you
2: stand on the point of view of a comfort zone here? Because I'm kind of guessing you're always a little bit on the edge a little bit here of a comfort zone, but trying to make sure that everybody else is in it. I don't, I'm trying, I'm trying to just work through that a little bit.
0: <laughs> no, so my, one of my, one of my, one of my favorite sayings, which I think everyone that agrees is bored with me saying is, you know, we need to get, we need to be comfortably uncomfortable. I think, yeah. um, <laughs> I think if we, if we become comfortable as a business or as an industry as a whole, right. Is, uh, is when we'll start to fall behind. So yes, we could be content and satisfied of where we are, uh, where we, where we are at that present time, but we should be slightly uncomfortable knowing that, if we don't move quickly, then we're going to get left behind. Um, so, you know, we have, you know, we talk about marginal gains, right? Again, a, a big sports term, right? In the world of cycling, we we talk about marginal gains internally about, you know, how do we make small continual improvements? Because the next techno- technological advancement doesn't always have to be, it can't always be, it just physically can't always be one massive leap forward. So sometimes it's just taking lots of small little steps forward. And over time, they add up to a big change and, and and really do move the needle longer term for the business until you then get across that big change. So, you know, when we when we implemented the CMP and started asking for consent, the next big change was five years later. But we were still always having new iterations of the product, still evolving the product constantly and adapting the environments we were targeting and, and using this personified data. Um, simply because users' behaviours were changing and their interests were changing and the way the world was going. And, you know, we saw the mass migration to digital platforms during COVID, but that was already happening before. COVID just accelerated that. Um, and I think we've just been able to stay at the front of it by, as I say, being comfortably uncomfortable, but then being, being happy in that environment, right? It doesn't mean we're always on edge and that we, we then tip over and we have burnout. It's how do we stay on the front foot I guess at all times and we don't kind of relax and rest on our laurels and think right the job's done we can relax for the next 6-12 months because that's when we'll start to lose.
2: I think that sort of seismic shift you've talked about from being comfortably uncomfortable and taking those tiny steps is, is reflected in your career
0: right? Yep definitely, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you have any missteps along the way? Well, yeah, I think, you know, we all all deliver missteps uh, along the way, you know, whether that's being, you know, crazily ambitious in terms of what what our objectives as a business or on certain individuals. And and then we fall short. and, And the fallout of falling short is obviously there's the disappointment around it. But then the longer term effect, you know, when you're setting goals for people it's massively important that they are stretched to to get the best out of them but you sometimes you can get that wrong right and you you overstretch people and uh they they become demotivated by targets or or goals um which is the opposite and i think i've learned over the over the years to to listen (laughs) um and not for for everything not to be set in concrete and i think um that's that's important as a business we should listen to our, our our team and uh from a senior leadership perspective, from my level in the UK, but also from the business level, you know, the very the boardroom level and investment level, you know, this business does listen really well, and I think that's a really good trait to have. And I try to take that into my personal life and my kids, try and listen to them, and uh, so they actually communicate. Because I think if you don't listen, people stop communicating, and you you then lose sense of of where you are, and you're going to need. That all those people that are on the front line, if you will, having conversations on a daily basis with clients, having you know tech challenges on a daily basis. If you're not listening to those, you're going to be you're going to be less well informed to make longer term strategic decisions for the company. I think the the biggest uh, the biggest fail was not listening in my in my early days in management um, as well as I probably should have or could have. But now it's you know I've I've learned that I can always learn more, <laughs> and I can learn from anyone, whether that's the ceo or whether that's the most junior intern that we've got in the business you can always learn from someone from their their experience or just have a different perspective because we'll have different opinions and we see something and i may may perceive it in this way and someone else may perceive it in a different aspect that i i, I can't relate to but once they tell me actually open you know expands my my mind a little bit and um, to see from their perspective what the future could look like from a business perspective
2: have you bought any domain names recently sam
1: i'm a developer that's that's one of the um trademarks of a good developer isn't it domain hoarding just in case yeah it's hard to get a good domain name it's like choosing a feature
2: branch name oh that's easy no it's not like in comparison to like trying to start a business pick a domain name all of that sort of stuff it's very complex. (laughs) <laughs> so where do you go then? Where do you, where do you buy your domains? The best place I've gone is uh, Namecheap. That's what I use. I would say that it not just has the widest range of domains that are on offer at good prices, but actually when you're administering the domain name and you're trying to set up all your MX links and your A links and all that sort of stuff, A records, there we go, C names, all those sort of things... It has probably the best descriptions for how to make the changes. And it's
1: the easiest to edit, in my opinion. Yeah. One-click setup on WordPress websites, hosting. They do the email as well. So they can do all of that. So if you have got a business idea, then now's the time to take action. The first piece of action you can do... It's by your domain name.
2: Well, the first piece of action is to take a look in our description for this episode or head over to thattech.show and click the affiliate link so that when you start using Namecheap, we get a little bit of a kickback. There we go. From a team-building perspective, then, you talked about having the best team possible to be successful. But how do you go about making sure that you have the right people and bring the right people into the business and actually, I suppose, let go is something we don't talk about that often. Let go of the people that aren't contributing well. I mean, how do you deal with that sort of life cycle?
0: I think we just need to to look at what kind of people we're, we're recruiting for and, and you know there's there is a bit of a skill gap in the industry. Um COVID played a big part in that. Um, you know, we had two years of not of, of young talent not really entering the business because of because of COVID and people kind of batting down the hatches to, to get through that period. And now now we're facing this skill gap in the industry and it's very hard to recruit. It's about selling selling in the in, the the industry um and also the business as a as a place to work, as a as a longer term career vocation, if you will, as opposed to just somewhere where you can make some money. Cause it's it's generally not about the money. It's more about what other benefits are you offering us as 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 individuals. That could be you know in terms of standard benefits in pension etc healthcare but also what development and that's what I'm thinking we see in more with with I guess a slightly younger generation is very much I don't really care about the salary I really care about what you're going to do for me in terms of longer term career development what am I going to learn and if I'm not learning then I'm not interested so we focus on career development here very much so um, and how can we really develop our own talent as well as recruit talented people from, from the industry, but we also want to create our own talent? And how do we offer them that upward mobility throughout, f- throughout the business so they can have the headspace to grow?
2: I think that's really interesting just to dive in there. I mean, I think there's, there's been some sort of discussion, I suppose, which does have a football analogy again, funnily enough. I don't even watch football, so I don't know how I'm coming up with this. <laughs> but the, um, the, uh, <laughs> there there is a whole thing around the, the sort of 10x person. A few years back and I think that was a common thing within football as well to go and hire the best possible people and build a team out of those best possible people and I think there's been some learnings maybe that that's not always the right way to go and actually building going for the, the right um cultural vibe in a person um and building the right vibe in a team is probably more correct than going after superstars uh, is, is that that sounds a little bit like what you what you're talking through.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, you, we 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 look at certain teams in, in, in the football world and, and they don't perform anywhere near they could, even though they've got the best talent uh, as individuals. Right. But the best individuals don't necessarily make the best team. You, you know, you can't have, I don't know, 11 messies on the pitch. Right. It's not going to work. You need different people with different skill sets, different characters, personalities, backgrounds, uh, ways of working to be able to have that mix, that melting pot of ideas um, and and longer term evolution, to then get the job done. Um, you know, if you have the same people with the same thoughts, you're not going to come up with good ideas, right? That's the that's the reality of the situation. And similarly, with we need people that are you know superstars, but operate in certain ways versus the the, the people that are very consistent, methodical workers to go alongside those. So, um, but you know, we we really believe in developing. Developing talent here and uh, and that that can be tricky, but um, because everyone's slightly different and had different needs, but um, we 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 really focus on it because we believe that's what's going to drive longer term retention. And then when you know when we look at performance, again, it's really about how do we improve performance if if there is underperformance, and analyze whether you know. We're the right company for that person. Sometimes, maybe we're doing something wrong. It's not always the individual's fault why they're not performing necessarily. It could be are we missing a trick? Are we not picking up the signals? and they have not got the tools to be able to be the best they can be? Um, and that's what we should be analysing first before we dig deep into, you know, why why they're not performing on, on an individual personal level.
2: Well, it's interesting you mentioned like the analyst analyst i'll use some real words uh it's interesting <laughs> that you mentioned the uh the analysis there because you're talking earlier about the analysis and the data that you're using in in relation to measuring the, the success of the product how, how important is data to to you as a well as a person but also within the business you're in
0: i think it's hugely important um I think we should, we should make decisions, uh, not always on, on solid data. You know, I think I'm a big believer that you should trust your gut as well. When you feel like it's the right thing, it just feels right, then we should do it. <laughs> but, um, but if there is data available, we should be using it, right? Our business is, is built on, on a few things, right? So it's, it's, we did the right thing. We feel we were doing the right thing when we looked at consent and, and then moving to totally ID-less and cookie The data probably at the time when we went for ID-less 18 months ago was probably suggesting it wasn't the right thing if we just used data to look at it. And actually, would that slow down our growth? Potentially um, by doing it. So the data was probably pointing to, to something else. Now, looking back in hindsight, which is always a wonderful thing, we can see that it was the right thing to do. Yes, we went early, but it transpires it was the right thing to do. But we didn't use data for that. Um, but then in saying that, we use data every day for our business, right, and how we how we create personas. Um, but I think it's about using data when you need to. And when you do need to, you use it in the right way.
2: How do you find that sort of balance then between, you know, to, to what you've said, like the data initially probably wasn't showing you that it was turning the rewards bearing the fruit that you wanted, but you were going to stick at it because your gut still felt that it was the right thing to do, and ultimately the data has shown that it was the right thing to do. But but how how do you find that sort of balance of like no, it's okay, we're going to stick with it. Don't worry. How do you strike that?
0: Well, I think it's it's down to what your goals are. This business is a long has a long term vision, and uh, if we if we're here to chase the next pound note or or next next month's revenue, and that's all we focus on then we're not going to deliver our objectives, right? And we're going, to, we're going to move away from our true core and our purpose. And we're going to start just chasing chasing the money. And that's not what we're here for. We're here to build a long-term sustainable business um, and in the right way. So, yes, we knew that in the short term, maybe that wasn't the right. When we look at data, it's going to have an impact. But we believe so strongly in something that this is the right thing to do. In terms of morally, it's the right thing to do. And yes, we did look at some data in terms of we saw that consumers were pushing back. We knew there was issues around cookies, but we weren't using those anyway. But we could see that then come into IDs. But the solid data suggests that it would have an impact in the shorter term. But we were going to, we thought actually, let's just have a longer term view Because we want to be a business that's successful in 10 years' time, not just next week. Um, And that's the reason why we made that decision and went through with it and stuck to our guns. And as I said, it's, it's paid off. Being bold and brave has paid off. Not every decision or, or, or idea will, but um, thankfully, our goal is to make more right than wrong decisions. <laughs> That's a good um, goal. And if we can do that, then we'll end, <laughs> then we'll end up in the right place. Um, you know, if we think we're only going to make right decisions, then we're being naive. You know, everyone's going to make a, the wrong decision every now and then. It's just how do we, how do we minimise this? Again, let's go back to football. Every goalkeeper is going to make a mistake. It's about minimising those mistakes and making the right kind of mistakes, i.e. the ones that don't lead to goals conceded. So, you know, the best players make the least amount of mistakes. They still make mistakes. And, and we want to be a business that's going to make mistakes. but We want to minimize the amount of mistakes we make and make sure the big bets we, 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 we do are the ones that pay off.
2: And, and how do you deal with sort of dissenters in the ranks who are going, I don't think it's working. It's not working.
0: <laughs> again, again, it's about collective responsibility and getting them to buy into the long-term vision. You know, it, you know the, ad, the ad market gets a lot of stick, right? We, we, we get it. You know, the internet, it is full of ads um you know i get people that i speak to outside of outside of work friends and family and say oh god you, you know you work for a company that just spams you on the internet well no we don't we're not there are companies that do that right but then we also have to take a step back and 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 i think preach the the benefits of our business and the benefits of our industry and i think the benefit of our industry is that advertising allows the internet to be free okay and i think that's that's a key message that I think the internet or the advertising industry hasn't really landed with consumers properly that yes, there is ads on this platform, but if there wasn't ads on this platform, we probably have to pay for the content because who's paying for the journalist to write that piece of news? Who's paying for that, that lifestyle editor to to create that or the, f- the photographer to create this content. So, you know, advertising does pla- pay for the technology and the platform, et cetera, et cetera, to exist and to give, you know, an open source product to, to the world, a free product to the whole world. So it's not going to go anywhere anywhere soon. We just need to preach about it a little bit better, particularly as more eyeballs are online. You know, more content needs to be created, which means more people need to be in jobs creating that content and someone needs to fund that. And very few people have managed to to do that. And when we look at the the whole ecosystem, when we look at The online advertiser players that are facing like real new challenges around whether that's ethical, whether that's new regulation, whether that's technological changes. They're really forcing them to kind of reconsider what their existing trading model is as as businesses. Um, And in light of this kind of whole overhaul, I guess we could we could bucket the Internet into kind of three categories. And the first category would be like the big walled gardens. So when we think of the walled gardens, we think of Meta or Facebook and Google and Amazon, right? And and then also retailers. So we look at retailers like Sainsbury's or even Next, et cetera. They're becoming kind of publishers in their own right because there's just huge direct traffic they get from their audiences. Um, and they have huge amounts of first-party data, whether that's on Facebook around interests and friendship groups or on, on Sainsbury's around transactional data and habits. Um, and then the second category, and, you know, they'll continue to do really well, that first category. The second category are the kind of con- traditional players that continue to, you know, have campaigns and run their businesses on cookies and IDs, regardless of what legislation and, and consumers are telling them. And, and that's kind of giving the industry a bad name because they're just continuing to retarget users, even though users are kind of pushing back. We look at Apple's Apple's new ad creative on TV is very much about, just one simple button on on, on iOS on an Apple device is to remove everyone bidding on your data, right? In a, in an auction, it's quite a you know a kind of satirical kind of version of what's happening, but it's very much the message is switch all these annoying ads off right away, right? And these players, these people in the middle, these big legacy publishers that are just continuing to sleepwalking into it, they're the middle that are going to get really squeezed. And then the third category is really the open internet stakeholders, right? And they're looking at generating new technology, being really respectful to the user privacy, understanding that the user journey is mass, is, is a core of the internet and users have got, you know, unlimited resource uh, and content to view and they are creating, curating their own experiences now and their own consumption of media. And it's important to, to go along on that journey, not try and interrupt it. They're the ones that are going to win. And that's why Ogri came up with personified advertising or personified, uh, ogre's personified advertising or personification, because we want to be the world leader in doing that um, to respect it. And I guess that's that's the ecosystem. And I think, you know, them top guys will continue to win, right? And we, and, and we feel we're one of the players, the that, that innovative guys that are going to win and really scale from the bottom. But it's them guys in the middle that really do give us a bad name in the industry of the the people that just spam it, right? And we need to push back on that and really deliver the message that this content that you love to consume, where you're spending, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours of your day, where you're scrolling the heights of Big Ben every day on your phone is delivered free to everyone simply because the advertising exists to fund it. And I think that's a really, really, I think for me, Gives me a bit more purpose in in the industry I'm in because we don't work in medical profession where we're saving lives, but we're actually our, the the underlying purpose of our industry or the impact or the consequence of our industry actually does really good, um, and uh, we should be proud of that as an industry.
1: You keep mentioning like that you're middle, you're not as big as the the big guys and whatever. Looking through your client list, you know you've worked with some of the biggest names on the planet, McDonald's, IBM uh microsoft Bose, you know these are the these are the types of clients you want to be working for therefore i would say you know you're at the top of the game really when it comes to this sort of thing what why is it that you perceive augury as not a major player or not one of those kind of the top the big dogs as it were
0: i think um we, we we always want to to continue to grow and i think if we get comfortable again go back to comfortable if we feel like we are we've made it and we're one of the big guys now i think i've seen the the malaise in, in some of the big publishers that you know they feel that their scale is their is their safety net not their innovation or product or or vision and um, and i think that's a huge mistake to make i think we need to we need to continue to grow we're not where we want to be, uh, you know, in five, six years time. We've got huge ambitions for this business. Um, and obviously so has our board of directors, et cetera. Um, and so has every individual. Right. And I think if you can get them to buy into that purpose and how do we continue to scale? Yes, we are competing on a daily basis with with the Facebooks and and. Uh, and Googles of this world, but we'd be naive to think that we're a similar scale to them, right? Because they are huge behemoths; they you know, the Silicon Valley giants. And uh, that doesn't mean we don't want to be there one day. But I think if we if we get there, and I'm sure we will at some at some point, we will continue to want to grow, uh, but in the right way, not just to own everything, but to to continue to innovate, continue to kinda of set the agenda um, and create that narrative of what the future looks like beyond trying to to be dictated to by the, by the, the bigger players in market.
1: I get, I totally get that. And there's something I kind of struggle with internally anyway. It's like, well, on the one hand, you never want to see yourself as successful or we've reached the pinnacle and, and we can take our foot off the gas. I think, I think it's a healthy perspective to have when you can always see room for improvement.
0: Yeah, and I think I think the the, the the critical thing is to keep it healthy. Okay, if you're always uh, always looking forward and um, only focusing on we can do better, um, then you never really uh, you never really stop to pause and appreciate what you've done. And uh, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier around having that time to step back and reflect. So we make sure we celebrate. Okay, we celebrate the wins, um, the business has done a good job of that over the few years with with parties, et cetera. And, and we continue to do so, right? Rewards for, for its staff and for its partners. And so Mm -hmm. we should, we've come a long way as a business. We've grown rapidly. Um, And now we're at a stage where we're ready to grow again. So it's almost like these different growth phases you go through as a business or, and, and we're in the, we're now ready to go. And I, I would say we're a business that I would liken to a rocket ship where the last seven years have been, have been building that ship and putting it on the platform ready to, the launch pad ready to go. And now we've started the engines. We're about to lift off. Um, and that lift off will happen over the next 18 months without a doubt with our, with our vision and evolution of personified advertising that, that we're going to imp- implement. And also the legislation and changes what's happening to the industry in terms of the deprecation of cookies and IDs. And there will be, the second tsunami coming to us, the first one was based on GDPR. The second one will 100% be around cookies being turned off tomorrow night along with IDs and brands and agencies or a CMO saying we're no longer using cookies, who can we work with? We need to be in, make sure we're in a position that there's enough awareness across the globe in every market, not just in the UK, to, for them to say Ogre oh, is that partner that's going to be our long-term, sustainable, future-proof partner.
1: It seems like this this shutting down of cookies really is, well, if you haven't got a significant amount of resources trying to work around that or, or prevent it, it sounds like you guys are one step ahead of the game. The, the challenge now is just creating that exposure to, to make sure people know that this solution existed because it's one of those things like you don't know what you don't know. And I always just thought that that targeted ag- advertisement in this kind of a, an individual user basis was just the only way to go, but... There you go. Learn. I go to sleep a little bit more intelligent tonight.
0: Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not just about the targeting, though, as well. I think it's about environments um, and it's about um, creative, like the formats as well. You know, we know that there's some pretty low standards, and we've held ourselves as an industry to low standards where we say a video on a mobile device that has 50% of its pixels in view for two seconds is a viewed video. Now, no one can tell me that that's a viewed video, right? And we see a very different like big difference between viewable is what we call in the industry and actually viewed. So, uh, viewability, yes, you're going to hit your viewability metrics because it was in view for two seconds or 50% of the video was in view for two seconds, but that's not being viewed. If you ask the user, what was the, what was the brand? What was the message? Do you even remember seeing it? The answer is no. Right? So we, we're also looking at how do we hold ourselves as an industry to higher account, not just from a user privacy perspective, but from an ad performance perspective. So our thing is that we only ever have fully on-screen uh, formats, um, but then we do it in a way that is kind of complements the user journey, doesn't interrupt it. So we're about how do we enhance the user journey and be relevant, not interrupt it and be that annoying ad that flashes over content and the, the, the user's just trying to get rid of it. Yeah, so we, we use a different metric now where 100% of the pixels so the whole screen is in view for a minimum of 50 percent of the video duration and and we we deliver that performance metric on every single campaign we run because we we believe we should hire, hold ourselves to a higher you know higher account we ran a study recently with lumen which is kind of the kind, kind of global leader of third party and attention studies that use eye tracking technology among other and add, interu- add interactions to, to to give you kind of a Uh, an attention score for your formats and placements. When we outperform the market, when we look at social media, we're kind of four to five times the performance in attention than than social media adverts are. And against our competitors, we deliver at least double the attention than than our competitors. And and again, we take this information to market. We say, look, we're not gonna charge you any more than the market. We're not gonna be crazy expensive because we feel like we're valuable. And the value you're giving us, we're happy with. We're not going to try and rip people off, but we're going to deliver robust performance. So we're going to hold ourselves to our higher account. And we're happy for you to do it because we believe in our product, And we believe that delivering good media campaigns is going to drive longer term sustainability and partnerships with agencies and brands, not just trying to run as many quick campaigns as we can, deliver that low metric, tick box, we hit 80% viewability. And bear in mind that benchmark is generally... 80 to 85% viewability for a video creative. And as I mentioned, that means, you know, 15% of your, t- your ads aren't even being seen 50% for two seconds, which just says there's total wasted, right? We need to really shift our, our whole thinking in the industry and really, really raise the bar, whether that's around consumer privacy and protection and respecting that data, or whether it's around what we, what we say is good performance in, in, ad, in digital environments. So
2: when you're actually building a persona, where does that data come from? How do you know that someone is in one group and not in another group?
0: So as I mentioned before, we had seven years of mobile journey data. So we had two billion consented devices across the globe um, and we could pick up what apps they were downloading the usage of those apps and what websites they were viewing on their mobile device. Okay, This was all consented before GDPR came in. And we use that as the foundation data. So we can see that someone that's got the, let's use the Daily Mail again, the Daily Mail app also have Strava. Uh, they also have cooking recipe sites and we can see what discriminant interests they will have. So we can we then build that cohort and say, well, people with, on the Daily Mail have a high-discriminate interest, particularly when they read this kind of content on the Daily Mail, have a high-discriminate interest in entertaining food apps and running, okay? And then we'll run ads within those environments on the Daily Mail, within that content strands or categories on the Daily Mail, asking a survey question of, do you run three times a week? Or do you like sport? Or do you, do you like recipes and cooking? Whatever it may, the question may be, um, and then based on those answers, that validates that that persona still exists and is still operating within those environments. And then we run ad creative based on that. And then we'll see the results of that creative in terms of performance. And that will then be our third layer of validation that, yes, that persona is correct because that ad creative is targeting that persona is performing well. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, and to an individual Does this appear more personalized or less personalized than the individual cookie or ID based primitive advertising? I'd say it's not primitive, but you know, like the legacy advertising.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It will be less intrusive. It's it's much less intrusive and less personalized simply because we are targeting the impression, not the user. So it's a natural environment for that, that creative to be, Um, and it will fit into their general user journey and behaviors and interests. Instead of, for example, uh, you go on the B&Q website and then you go on to 15 other websites and the B&Q adverts are everywhere all of a sudden for a lawnmower because you looked at a lawnmower. You've got no interest in lawnmowers generally, right? You may just need one or, 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 or you know, you've looked, you've come across one and you looked at a picture of one. Um, but all of a sudden, you're now a, a lawnmower enthusiast, uh, according to the internet, and you get totally <laughs> spammed. Now, we would never do that, right? Because we don't do retargeting and stuff like that because we don't pick up the user's any, any identifier of that particular user. But uh, we, we know that, you know, if you're interested in food, for example, and I, I don't know, maybe food or financial services, you may come across a financial services ad, but it won't be because you just went on a financial services website and we're you. It is because you're in an environment where we know users have an interest in financial services.
2: So this appears to me then to be almost a happy medium in a way pulling back from that individual targeted. Because if you imagine, you know, you go back to the days of print, actually, you know, the, the, um, you're going to be putting out your adverts on the television or they're going to be in the, in the paper and they're going to get to everybody who opens that paper or is watching ITV or something like that. That's very sort of generic, broad spread advertising versus the individual, you know, your, your lawnmower example you've looked at lawnmowers today. So here's more, many, many, many more lawnmowers, even if you've actually already purchased a lawnmower. This sounds like it's, it's sort of halfway between those two really of like, actually we've, we found that you're in this right uh, group or segment or, you know, persona. Uh, So we're going to give you something that to your point would feel less intrusive. So is, is there a is there a pattern for that? Is there is there something that um, we would be familiar with experiencing that? Are we seeing it on any of the social networking sites at the moment? And
0: No. So the, the unique thing about Ogre as a business is no one's got that that foundation data, okay? Because no one was asking for consent when we were. So no one had the ability to do it. Um, and then GDPR came in and, and, and then put that to bed. So it's not repeatable. People can't go back and obtain that data. Only we have that base data. And we're the only people in market that have that base data and then are validating and enriching that data with surveys. So some people run surveys in market, um, but they haven't got that foundation data to, to really go off upon. So they're just using survey data, which is quite top level, top line in their instances, which lacks the audience intelligence behind it. Um, so they can do some kind of sonification advertising, but nowhere near to the sophistication that we can. Okay. So I am
2: right then, I suppose. that is that medium, that happy yes, medium. Exactly that.
1: Very good, nice one. Well, uh, I hope your partner is now so much more informed about whatever it is you do, and uh, I certainly am. It's been a, it's been a great, interesting chat. Thanks for being on the show
0: no really good hopefully it was hopefully it was good and um, I didn't expect to talk as much as I did about football to be honest <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, uh, so well done for prying that out for me I don't think half the people know here ogre know that I played football professionally so that would be a bit of a shock
2: I think it's all part of the um, all part of the experience it's what brought you to where you are now I think it's interesting
0: yeah exactly exactly
2: <laughs> thanks again for joining us it's been a pleasure
0: no cheers guys great to meet you both as well
1: Next week, we have the charismatic Jason Brown from JellySmack who work with some of the biggest names on social media such as MrBeast, PewDiePie and many others to repurpose their content on different platforms based on recommendations from JellySmack's proprietary software. Once again, give us a follow or subscribe or support the show with a one-off coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash that tech show or even a review. And we'll see you next time. See you on the ice.